0: The following audio is from Shiloh Presbyterian Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. More information about Shiloh Presbyterian Church is available at shilohopc.org. Amen. Please remain standing. Turn in your scriptures, if you were, to Romans chapter 6. And just two verses. Romans chapter 6, verses 11 and 12. As we continue our series on the godly person's picture... And this week we will see that the godly person mortifies sin. The godly person puts sin to death. Romans 6, verses 11 and 12. Let us hear the word of God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, to make you obey its passions. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we do now cry out to you that you'll be merciful, uh, merciful in providing us your word. Uh, Grant that your spirit will work richly and powerfully in my words and in all our ears and hearts that we might hear what your spirit has to say to this church. We do plead with you, Father, make up what is lacking in us in every respect. Fill us, Lord God, this night uh, with the blessed and powerful working that you have worked in us and continue to do so in salvation and in holiness. Be pleased, Father, amidst all this, to elevate the work of you our great god in our lives so that you receive the glory we desire not only to be built up but rather to give you glory and praise and honor and we ask this in jesus name amen please be seated well i wonder how many of us perhaps uttered an inward groan when we heard the subject matter of the sermon, the mortification of sin. It's hardly one of those sermons that we we want to listen to, to be uplifted and strengthened and encouraged. Perhaps tonight you're fearful that you're going to be rebuked by the word, or it's just going to be a hard sermon to listen to. It might be, but not because of the subject matter. You might come away discouraged, And that might be, in fact, a common uh, response to this kind of idea in Scripture. But I want to suggest to you that probably reveals to us something about how we think about holiness, how we think about our duty. Perhaps we view the striving for holiness and obedience, the putting to death of sin in our lives, perhaps we view it in an essentially negative fashion. Perhaps when we think about this, we we know we're going to be convicted by God's word. We're going to be beaten down. And perhaps we're thinking that God has a view of us, that he's looking down on us in an essentially disapproving manner. Or you get the impression that God is, as it were, marking your divine report card with the words, must try harder. I want to say that's the wrong view of sanctification. It's the wrong view of the mortification of sin. I think we ought to view the mortification of sin in an essentially positive light in our lives, an essentially positive, not simply a don't, 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 but rather think upon the foundation of the mortification of sin in our lives and allow that to be the great motivation, the energizing of our quest for holiness there is no doubt in our lives a struggle there is no doubt the temptation of sin there is no doubt the failure of our lives in holiness none of which is pleasant of course but the key to our mortification of sin it seems to me as John Owen would have said was that we become more acquainted with our mercies and more acquainted with our privileges. That, I think, is the heart of mortification. More acquainted with our mercies, more acquainted with our privileges. Immediately we see the mortification of sin is essentially cast in positive terms. Let us learn more of who we are and what we have received in Christ and in the powerful working of the Spirit. I hope we do that tonight. I hope we see that wonderful foundation which should empower us not only to desire holiness, but then to enact holiness in our lives. The godly person puts sin to death in his or her life. Tonight we'll look at three things. First of all, the foundation of mortification. Then the desire of for mortification, and lastly, and most briefly, the practice of mortification, the foundation of mortification. Remember where we've been in this series, the godly person being portrayed for us in Scripture. That godly person is one who has had his knowledge of God renewed He's one who loves God, who strives to be like God, who loves the Word, and thus is an heavenly man or woman. All that we've seen so far plays into the disposition and the daily action of the Christian. Everything we've learned so far plays into tonight's message, our disposition and our daily action. Because the godly person is one who has been separated from the power of sin and presently hates sin and seeks to put it to death. Objective facts there. The godly person is one who has been separated from the power of sin. Thomas Watson will say the godly person does not indulge in any sin. Though sin lives in him, yet he does not live in sin. Though sin is within us, we do not live, we do not indulge in that sin. Theologians call this the mortification of sin, the putting to death of our earthly desires. That's what mortification means, to put something to death. And we see this language throughout the whole of Scripture. Paul speaks of the reality of mortification here in Romans six eleven and 12. He says in verse 11, So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. Consequently, he then says in verse 12, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to obey its passions elsewhere he'll speak with this language in colossians 3 5 put to death therefore what is earthly in you put to death that's the repeated message of scripture that the christian is to be one who denies the reign and rule and practice of sin in our lives. In fact, Scripture goes further than just saying we ought to deny the reign and rule. Scripture says we ought to stab sin through its heart. We ought to put it to death. But it's interesting, Paul, and indeed all of Scripture, never just comes to us as a bare commandment. Do this. Put sin to death. No, every commandment that God calls his children unto is always prefaced by and predicated upon gospel realities. The good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is central and, I suggest, exclusive to the Christian faith. That for the Christian, all obedience and all attendance upon duty is founded upon... God's work in us and for us, in God's work in salvation past and in God's sanctifying work by the power, present sanctifying work by the power of the Holy Spirit. R.C. Sproul was right when he said, we are not sinners because we sin, we sin because we are sinners. Sinners. And the same can be said of the Christian. We are not righteous because we practice righteousness. Rather, we practice righteousness because we are righteous. That's to say, dear friends, your spirit wrought state and your spirit wrought status before God are the cause of your conduct. Who you are defines how you behave what god has done in your life is the cause and the energy as it were the enabling to put sin to death and to live unto righteousness we mortify sin because that is the necessary response of the christian to the work that god has done and is presently doing in our lives notice that it is a response It is a response. So, if it's a response to what God has done in our lives, what has God done in our lives? If you're a Christian here tonight, I want you to hear this very clear. There is an objective, real and radical transformation in your nature and in your status before God, which is the foundation for the mortification of your sin. There is an objective, real, and radical transformation, both in your status and in your nature, which is the foundation of the mortification of sin. And the starting point of that radical transformation is the doctrine of regeneration. The doctrine of regeneration. If we were to jump over to 1 John chapter 3, where we could preach essentially the same sermon as we're going to hear tonight, uh, we would read of people who are, quote, born of God. People who, quote, do not make a practice of sinning. People who are abiding in him and people in whom, quote, God's seed abides. That's John's language of regeneration and mortification. Paul has his own language of regeneration and mortification, language which reflects that objective, real, and radical change in your nature and status before God. Listen, chapter 6, verse 1 of Romans. There's a presenting question that leads Paul to deal with all these issues and the mortification of sin. The question is this, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? The the underlying question is, what is the Christian's ongoing relationship to sin? Shall we continue in sin? The answer is in verse 2, by no means. That's a little bit soft in translation. Paul saying, may it never be so that we would take our new status as those who are under grace and use it as an excuse to continue in sin. He says, how can we, listen, who died to sin live any longer in it? How can we who died to sin still live in it the christian is one objectively who has died to sin died to the power of sin and paul's going to build on this in verses three four five and so on what does it mean to die to sin paul's going to say that in christ's life his death and his resurrection to which the believer is united by faith he's going to say the power of The desire and the practice of sin has once and for all been broken in the life of a Christian. That our relationship to sin has radically and objectively changed. And he's going to use the image of union with Christ. He'll say we're baptized into Christ. We're baptized into his death. We've been buried with him. We've been raised with him, culminating in Romans 6, verse 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Isn't that good news? The Christian is one who is objectively no longer a slave to sin. That's why he says in verse 13, do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but rather present your members to God as instruments for righteousness, because you can. You are no longer under the authority, no longer under the power, no longer enslaved by the terrible taskmaster that is sin all this union imagery baptized into him into his death resurrection and so on it's saying this christ's work which has been applied to us by the holy spirit puts within us a new principle of life a new principle of life So much so that our relationship to sin has now permanently changed. Though sin remains in us, we no longer remain a slave to sin. Let me say that again. Though sin remains in us, the Christian no longer remains a slave to sin. The unbeliever remains a slave to sin. The unbeliever is in bondage to sin. The unbeliever loves sin. He loves the practice of sin. Men love darkness rather than light. But the Christian is no longer in that realm. How? The start is the doctrine of regeneration. How can a person who is dead in trespasses and sins no longer be enslaved to sin? It's because of the doctrine of regeneration. The doctrine of regeneration is described elsewhere. John 3 is being born again, or the new birth, being born from above. Paul says we've been set free from sin. That is to say, spiritually, we've been born by the Holy Spirit. Just as a human birth is the result of uh, the father and, and principally the mother's work So too is the spiritual new birth, the product of the labor of the Holy Spirit. And he gives birth in us to new spiritual life and realities. And that new birth sets us free from enslavement to sin. It sets us free from enslavement to a selfish disposition, to a will that is bound under sin. Regeneration renews our wills, changes our wills, and turns our disposition toward God. And this is not subjective, dear friends. This is objective in the true, sincere Christian. Our wills are renewed. Our hearts are changed. Your hearts are turned Godward. So are your desires. And your desires then produce righteousness good works and the work of regeneration in time ultimately gives way to the work of sanctification growth in grace and holiness and sanctification is only possible because of the work of regeneration the christian is united to christ by the work of the spirit by spirit wrought faith United to him in his life, his death, his resurrection, which ultimately implants within us a principle of life. And this is the foundation, dear friends. This is the foundation which enables the Christian, by the continued working of the Holy Spirit, to put sin to death. God's work description of this in Ezekiel 36 and verse 26. And notice very clearly who is acting. God says, and I will give you a new heart. Or we can look at 1 John chapter 3 and verse 9. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning for God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Both passages very clear delineate the cause and the effect. The cause is the new birth. What God has done in the Christian. I will give you a new heart. And that new heart will delight in obeying my commandments. John Murray says this, regeneration is at the basis of all change in heart and life. It is a stupendous change because it is God's recreative act. And he applies it almost in a petition to God. He says, May the church come to think and live again in terms of the gospel, which is the power of God under salvation. May we come to think of it once again as the power of God under salvation. Do you believe, dear friends, that God has the power to save you from the penalty of sin? Then you must equally believe that God has the power to save you from the penalty Power of sin that's what we sing. That's how we praise God, rock of ages, cleft for me, Let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy riven side which flowed, be of sin a double cure, cleanse me from its guilt and power. The work of Christ applied to the Christian by the work of the Spirit not only removes from us the penalty of sin, but it breaks the power of sin in your life, dear Christian. That's the work of God. He has done it. It's objective. It's real. It's a radical transformation in the life of you dear christian and one of the changes that this regeneration brings about is new desires that's our second consideration the desire for mortification it's not just you see an objective reality it is placed within our heart that we should desire to mortify the flesh and if we're sincere and honest christians tonight we know the struggle with sin don't we each one of you i'm sure does The struggle of sin in your life that you desire, you desire righteousness, but inevitably day after day you fail. And we're cast down in the struggle for sin. We see this testimony, uh, this struggle for sin or against sin in our lives. We see it also implicit in the text before us. Paul says, Romans, uh, we see it in Romans 6, 11, So you also must consider yourself dead to sin, which is the implication or has the implication uh, that sometimes we may not consider ourselves dead to sin. The command that follows, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. An implication there is that sometimes we do actually let sin reign in our mortal body. We know the struggle. What's implicit in Romans 6 is explicit in Romans 7. Uh, The subplot becomes the clear plot in Paul's writing. There is a struggle in sin. And Paul's writing this, the Spirit has given us this, so that we can rewire our thinking. We can rewire our thinking after biblical truth. We see the conflict in Paul himself, Romans 7, 15. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Verse 18. I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. He finishes that section with these words, wretched man that I am. He desires something better, but finds that principle of indwelling sin at war within him. We hear that same struggle, do we not, in the psalmist. Psalm 32, verse 9. The psalmist is as much teaching himself as he is us. He says, be not like a horse or mule without understanding which must be curbed with bit and bridle or will not stay near you. He's saying, don't need the chastening hand of God on your life to turn from sin and to practice righteousness. Or Psalm 51.7, David's psalm after his sin with Bathsheba, he cries out to God, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Or we can turn to Psalm 139. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down, when I rise up. You search out my path and my lying down. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. At the end of that psalm, the psalmist pleads with God that God would sanctify him. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Oh, there's that plea in the psalms in all of scripture, isn't there? That God would reveal unto us the wickedness of our desires and remove them far from us and lead us in the way everlasting. Or to use the words of Psalm 51:10, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew within me a right spirit. That's the psalmist's desire to be holy before God. That same conflict that existed in the psalmist, that existed in Paul, is most assuredly our experience. Our desires give birth to sin. We know our thoughts direct us. Matthew twelve thirty four. our Lord says, Out of the fullness of the heart, the mouth speaks. But the Christian is one who has been set free from the power of sin. And a sanctified heart will produce sanctified living. It will produce the mortification of sin. Friend, remember... God has broken the dominion of sin in your life. He's broken its dominion. He's broken its authority. God has given you a new heart. He's implanted that new principle within you. Christian, you are no longer bound by the power of sin. You do not need to obey its passions. And yet, we often attempt, I think, to stop sinning, <laughs> to fight this fight of sanctification by doing just that, by stop, stopping sinning. There's a time and place for that, most assuredly. But it's essentially negative, isn't it? Oh, I must not do this. Don't, don't, don't. Well, we know what that does in our lives, it provokes us actually to sin. It exacerbates sin in our lives if we simply have that I must not, I must not. There's a time and place for it, but it can't be the motivation for your holiness. There is a better way, friends, a better way to approach the mortification of sin, and it's this, that you, dear friend, become more acquainted with your mercies and your privileges in Christ. That's essentially positive, isn't it? that we learn more of the love of God for us in Christ and the Spirit's powerful working in us. We feed our souls with the glory of Christ and of his gospel. This is a biblical principle. If you look at the epistle to the Romans, in fact, any of Paul's epistles, the first chapters are all what? They're all about the gospel of Christ. The last chapters are all about what? Commands for holy living. The gospel precedes the command. Do you know where in Romans the first command comes to us? The first command in all of Romans It's not in chapter 1, nor 2, nor 3, nor 4, nor 5. You have to wait till you get to Romans 6.11, our text tonight, for Paul's first command regarding Christian living. He spent six chapters delineating the glories of the gospel, the beauty of justification by faith alone, the peace the Christian has with God, and then finally he gets to, after union with Christ, he says, so you also must consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Do this. And is it not interesting to us that the first command in the epistle to the Romans is not stop sinning? That's the second command, verse 12. The first command is not stop sinning. The first command is consider, think, understand, believe, meditate upon who you are, the mercies and the privileges that belong to you in Christ. Then he says, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. Can you see what the pattern of Scripture is doing for us? It's providing us with the very foundation I'm seeking to articulate tonight. The work of God for us in the past, regeneration, the work of God for us in the present, the spirit-working holiness, is the foundation for us to put sin to death. To put it another way, Christian, know who you are. And I don't mean all the negatives now. We are to know who we are by nature, our character failings. But know who you are in Christ Jesus. And Paul says in Romans 6, you are dead to sin. You, dear Christian, are dead to sin. Friends, we know the struggle, don't we? Many of you speak to me about your struggle. I speak about my struggles in sin i wonder friends in your frightful holiness to mortify the flesh how many of us are starting with the reality of the truth i am dead to sin that the power of sin has been categorically once and for all broken in my life and i do not need to continue in it i suspect the opposite is actually true of us many times that our lives are so full of sin, as we get older and more holy, we become more aware of that sin, and it's almost as if it's so obvious to us that we feel very much alive to sin and dead to God in Christ. But Paul tells us something different. He says, you are dead to sin. Will you not take that seriously, dear friend? Who you are, And what God has done for you. Will you not take God at his word? He has said you are dead to sin. Your desires do not need to go down sinful paths. You are no longer a slave to sin. From anger to fear to lust to idolatry. Anxiety to pride. To greed, to mean spiritedness, and everything in between, we are dead to the power of sin. That transforms our search for holiness, doesn't it? Because we're not trying to uh, transform ourselves by some he- self help or three quick steps. No, trying to mortify sin, friends, without reference to the gospel, the power, and the grace of God is like trying to put out a forest fire with a garden hose. It's impossible. But when we have God's work as our foundation, it is most certainly possible to put sin to death. To change our desires. Why? Because they have been changed. To expel wicked desires and actions from our life, we must replace them with the glorious truths of the gospel. Then, like the psalmist, 119 verse 97, we can truly say, oh Lord, how I, how, how I love your law. I love your law. It's my meditation all the day. God has done a work in the Christian Let's live according to that work. But finally, the practice of mortification. And very briefly, and I hope you can see the length, of my, the length of my point is getting shorter and shorter as we get to the practical. Because that's the pattern of Scripture. The gospel permeates, surrounds, you see, the command to put sin to death. Paul says in verse 12, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Don't let sin reign. Command, don't do it. Don't let sin reign. Don't let sin have dominion. Don't let sin bully you into submission. How then do we go about mortification? Well, certainly with much prayer. The Holy Spirit, we can see, opened the eyes of the psalmist. He said, Search me, O God. Ought we not to say the same thing, to pray to our Father in heaven that He would reveal unto us the sin and corruption remaining in us, and then plead with Him for the grace to put that to death? Secondly, we do what Paul says, and we do it in that order. First, we consider ourselves dead to sin, and then. We put sin to death, and it's not the other way around. We're not attempting to put sin to death as it were to try and get into God's good graces. We are put into God's good graces by his mercy and his grace. Consequently, we are to put sin to death. You'll notice the first command here is to think, to consider yourself something. Consider yourself to be someone in the eyes of God. The second command that follows it is the command then to put sin to death. Think, consider what God has done and is doing and then use that to put sin to death. But how do we do that? And if I can turn a little Puritan on you, three acknowledgements, three reminders and four resolutions. How to put sin to death. Three acknowledgements, three reminders, and four resolutions. First acknowledgement. Acknowledge the heart of sin. The heart of sin is anti-God. It's anti-Christ. It's anti-the Spirit. And it is anti-you. The great lie of sin is that success and pleasure will come from it. It's a lie. It'll kill you acknowledge the heart of sin second acknowledgement acknowledge the nature of sin that whether the sin is by hand or by heart it is still a sin in the eyes of god god sees it all the nature of sin thirdly acknowledge the danger of sin In the same manner, dear friend, that you cannot plunge your hand into a furnace and bring it out unscathed. You cannot indulge sin and come away unscathed. It just doesn't work. It just doesn't work. The wages of sin, we're told, are death. And on the way to death, sin brings every misery of this life. Acknowledge the heart of sin, the nature of sin, the danger of sin. So far, you've got nothing to do other than acknowledge, to think, consider. Three reminders in helping us. Remind yourself, firstly, that you do not put sin to death by your own resources. Romans 8, 13. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. We do not put sin to death at our own resources. Remind yourself, secondly, linked to the first, that it is almighty power at work within us in the work of the Spirit. Almighty. The Spirit is almighty. We put sin to death by the Spirit. Friends, we are not impotent. We're not powerless, weak. In this fight against sin, we have almighty power on our side working in us. The third reminder, very important. Remind yourself that when you have sinned and you have failed, you are to repent of your sin. You are to confess it to the Lord who is faithful and just to forgive you and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And having done that, get on with life. In other words, take the forgiving power and mercy of God seriously. He is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Believe it. Confess your sin. Repent of it. Move on. And don't dwell on that which you've confessed or repented. Six things that we're to think upon. Four things now that we are to resolve to do. First resolution, resolve to know and use God's ways of blessing. Resolve to know and use God's ways of blessing. He has given us the means of grace where we are now. The word, sacraments, and prayer, the fellowship of the saints, what we have in our homes in terms of family worship and individual worship. These things prosper the Christian life. Psalm 119.11, your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. They prosper the work of mortification. Second resolution, resolve that the celebration of the Lord's day, morning and evening, is one of the central ways in which God will equip you in this fight. Isaiah chapter 58 and verse 13 Isaiah 58:13 Observance of the Sabbath, attendance upon the means of grace. If you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight and the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it, not going your own ways or seeking your own pleasure or talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord. And I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Final resolution. To live in accordance with who you are. Dear Christian, you're a child of the great God. A child of the King of Kings. And the Lord of Lords, in whom, by the life, death, resurrection of Christ, and the application of that to you, by the Holy Spirit, you are a child of God, in whose life the power of sin has been overcome. That's a glorious truth. Resolve to know that more. So even your last resolution is not really about putting sin to death, is it? It's resolving to know who you are. And friend, if you're here tonight and you're not a child of God, we would beseech you and call upon you right now to lay down all your sin, all your pretense, all your self-righteousness. Whatever's going on in your life that's obscuring you from, from your relationship with God, turn your back on sin this very night and receive one who is far more satisfying, Jesus Christ. Believe on him, and you shall be saved from the penalty of your sin and the power of your sin. John Owen said, be about killing sin, or sin will be about killing you. Or we could put it another way. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and strength and friend when our love for god blossoms sin withers let's pray lord god we must decrease and you must increase in every respect that must be true we must decrease our own estimation of our abilities to put sin to death and lord we desire that you would increase in our estimation that we would have greater views of you of your son's work and of the spirit's powerful working in our lives oh be pleased father in heaven to take this word and seal it to our hearts that we might rejoice in your good hand upon us and put sin to death for we ask this in christ's name Amen.